Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Greater Than Code. This is episode number 241. I'm Mondo Escamilla, and I'm here with my friend, Maid Beal. Hi there. And I am also here with Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey. And we're all here with Adam Ross Nelson, our guest today. Welcome, Adam. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Since 2020, Adam is a consultant who provides research, data science, machine learning, and data governance services. Previously, he was the inaugural data scientist at the Common Application, which provides undergraduate college application platforms for institutions around the world. He holds a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in educational leadership and policy analysis. Adam is also formerly an attorney with a history of working in higher education, teaching all ages, and educational administration. He is passionate about connecting with other data professionals in person and online. For more information and background, look for his insights by connecting with Adam on LinkedIn, Medium, and other online platforms. We are lucky we have him here today. So, Adam, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I spent so much time thinking about this question. I really wasn't sure what to say. I hadn't thought about my superpower in a serious way in a very long time. And I was tempted to go whimsy with this, but I got input from my crowd and my tribe. And where I landed was teaching, learning, and education. And you might look at my background with a PhD in education, leadership, and policy analysis, all of my work in education administration, higher education administration, and teaching, and just conclude that was how I acquired the superpower. But I think that superpower goes back much further and much deeper. So when I was a kid, I was badly dyslexic. I could not imagine going through life and you can't even tell the difference between a lowercase b and a lowercase d. Indistinguishable to me. Also, I had trouble with left and right. I didn't know if someone told me turn left here, I'd be lucky to go in the right, a 50-50 chance of going in the right direction, basically. Lowercase p and q were difficult. And for this podcast, the greater than sign. I died in the math unit, or I could have died in the math unit when we were learning greater than or less than. Well, and then another one was capital E and the number three. Couldn't tell the difference. Capital E, number three. For greater than, I slowly developed... Uh, mnemonics in order to learn these things. So for me, the greater than less than mnemonic is, I don't know if you ever think about it, but think of the greater than or less than sign as an alligator and it's hungry. So it's always going to eat the bigger number. (laughs) It's always going to eat the bigger quantity. So once I figured that mnemonic out and a bunch of other mnemonics, I started doing a little bit better. My high school principal told my parents that I would be lucky to graduate high school. And there's all kinds, I mean, we could unpack that for days, but you know, what kind right? Like what kind of (laughs) high school principal says that to anybody, which resonates with me now in hindsight, because everything we know about student learning, the two most influential factors on a student's ability to learn are two things. One, teacher effectiveness. And number two, principal leadership. Scholarship always bears that out. Yeah. So- The principal told my family that, and oh, also in my family, my household growing up, I was an only child, 
we were a very poor household. Low income was an understatement. So my disadvantages aside, learning and teaching myself was basically all I had. So mm-hmm. I was the kid, I was the kid who grew up in this neighborhood, I had some friends in the neighborhood, and I was always exploring adjacent areas of the neighborhoods. I was in a semi-rural area, so there were wooded areas, there were some streams, some rivers, some lakes. And I was always the kid that said, that found something new. I found a new trail, a new stream, a new whatever. And I would run back to my neighborhood and be like, hey, everybody, I just found something. Look what I found. Follow me and I I will show you also. I will show you the way and I will show you how cool that is. Isn't it? I love like this. I love that. (laughs) Sharing. I'm glad because, because when I'm in the classroom, when I'm teaching, um, when I'm teaching, either doing, I do a lot of corporate training now too. When I'm either teaching in a traditional university classroom or in corporate setting, that is me reliving my childhood playtime, right? It's like, hey, mm-hmm. everybody, look at this cool thing that I have to show you. And now I'm going to show it to you also. So teaching, learning, and education is my superpower. And, you know, in one way that's manifested, when I finished school, I finished my PhD at 37. I had been in school. I wasn't 40 years old yet. If you count kindergarten, I had been in school for 23 years, over half of my life. Not mm. half of my adult life. Half of my entire life was in school. And now that I'm rounding 41, that was last week I turned 41. Now that I'm rounding turn 41. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you so much. Um, now that I'm rounding 41, I'm finally a little more than half of my life not in school. Well, congrats, man. That's, that, that's an accomplishment. <laughs> so I'm curious to... To know how you how you kind of transitioned from that academic world into being a data scientist proper, like you know what what got you to that point, what set you down that path, just that whole story. I think it'd be super interesting to talk about and dig into. Sure, I think context really matters. What was going on in mm-hmm. the data science field at the time I finished the PhD? I finished that PhD in. 2017, right? So mm-hmm. in 2017, that was sort of at the apex of, well, I don't know if it was, if, or maybe we're now at the apex. I don't know exactly where the apex was or is or will be, but there was a lot of excitement around data science as a field and as a career in, in about three or four years ago. For sure. And so when I was finishing the PhD, I had the opportunity to tech up in my PhD program and gain a lot of the skills that others might have gained via other paths through more traditional computer science degrees, economics degrees, or boot camps, or both. And then I was also in a position where I was probably, and this is common for folks with a PhD, probably one of the handful of people in the world who were a subject matter expert in a particular topic. But also, I had the technical skills to be a data scientist. So there was an organization, the common application from the introduction, there was an organization that was looking for a data scientist who needed domain knowledge in the area that I had my PhD, and that's what a PhD does for you, is it gives you this really intense level of knowledge in a really small area. And then 
the technical skills. So that's how I transitioned into being a data scientist. I think in general, that is the template for many folks who have become a data scientist, especially if you go back three or four or five or six years ago before formal data science training programs started popping up and even before, and then I think some of the earliest boot camps for data science were about 10 years ago. At least the most widely popular ones were about 10 years ago, to be clear. And then there's another view that that's just when we started calling it data scientist, it's data science, because the skills for, I mean, all of the technologies and, and analytical techniques we're using, not all of them, many of them have been around for decades. So that's important to keep in mind. So I think to answer your question, I was in the right place at the right time. There was a little bit of luck involved. And I always try and hold myself from fully giving all the credit away to luck because that's something, well, maybe we'll talk about it later when it comes to imposter syndrome. That's one of the symptoms, so to speak, of imposter syndrome is giving you credit for your success away to luck while you get credit the success of others to skill or ability. But let me talk about that template. So the template is many data scientists become a data scientist with this sort of three-step process. One, you establish yourself as an expert in your current role. And by establishing yourself as an expert, you're the top expert or one of very, very few people who are very, very skilled in that area. Then you start tackling business problems with statistics and machine learning and artificial intelligence. And you might not be called a data scientist yet, but by this point, you're already operating as a data scientist. And then eventually, you be the data scientist. You become the data scientist. And if it is a career path for you, it will you'll potentially change roles into a role that's formally called, specifically called data science. But, you know, one of the articles I wrote recently on Medium talks about the seven paths to data scientist. And one of the paths talks about a fellow who really does, doesn't consider himself a data scientist, but he is a data scientist, been a data scientist for years. But he's really happy with his organization and his role as it's titled as an engineer. And he he's great. He's good to go. So probably, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later too. I think someone asked about, as we were chatting and planning, someone asked about pedigree a little bit. And one of the points I like to make is there's no right or wrong way to do it. There's no right or wrong way to get there. Just once you get there, have fun with it. I, I love what you said, Adam, about the steps. And they're very similar to what I would advise to any non-traditional coder and have advised is like, take all of your prior work experience before you become a programmer is absolutely relevant. And some of the best ways to have a meaningful impact and mitigate one's own imposter syndrome is to get a job where you are programming and you already have some of that domain knowledge and expertise to be able to lend. So you don't have to have been like one of the rarefied few, but just having any familiarity with the discipline or, or domain of your the business you end up getting hired at or applying to certainly is a way to get in the door a little easier and feel more comfortable once you're there that you can contribute in lots of ways. And it provides, it gives you the ability to provide value that other folks who are on a different path, who are going into data science earlier, those folks 
it's a great path too. Don't let me discount that path. But those folks don't have the deep domain knowledge that someone who transitions into data science later in their career provides. Exactly. Yeah. And it, the amazing teams have people with all the different versions, right? Like you don't want a team with only one. Yeah. That's another thing I like to say about data science is it's a team sport. It has to be a team. It has to be done in tandem with others. I just had a, a realization that everyone I know in data science, they tend to come from science backgrounds or maybe a data science boot camp. But I don't know anyone who moved from like web development into data science. And that, that's just so surprising to me. I wonder why. I uh, crossed the border a little bit, I would say. I, from, I worked in the Center for Data Science at RTI in North Carolina, and I did do some of the data science there as well as just web programming, but my undergrad is biochem, so I don't break your rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't think I know any either. At the very least, they all come from a, a hard science or like mathematics background which is interesting to me because it's that's definitely not my experience with web application developers or just developers in general, right? Like, I mean, there's plenty who come from a comp sci background or an MIS background or something like that, right? But there's also plenty who come from non-traditional backgrounds as well, not just boot camps, right? But just like, you know, they were a history major and then picked up programming and kind of, you know, or whatever, right? And it, it doesn't seem to be as common, I think, in data science. Not to say that it couldn't, right? But just from my own, or maybe our own experience, right? It's not quite as common. You know, if there's anybody listening with the background that we're talking about, the other backgrounds, I would say reach out probably to any of us. And, you know, we'd love to workshop that with you. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Yeah, the more the more stories we can amplify, the better. You know, I we know y'all are out there. We just we, <laughs> we just don't know you, and we should. Adam, can you tell us a little some descriptor that is you know like a hobnobbing thing that we would be able to say to a data scientist? Like maybe you can tell us what p values are, or just some sort of uh, some little talking point. Do you have any favorite go tos? Well, I suppose if you're if you're looking for dinner party casual conversation and you're looking for some sort of back pocket question you could ask a data scientist and you're not a data scientist, I would maybe ask a question like this or a question that I could respond to easily as a data scientist might be something like, well, what types of predictions are you looking to make? And then the data scientist could respond with, oh, such an interesting question. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that before, but the response might be something like, well, I'm trying to predict a classification. I'm trying to predict categories, or I'm trying to predict income, or I'm trying to predict whatever it is that, I, yeah, that would be interesting. I think that would be an interesting way to go. What's another one? Oh, I've got one for anyone you know in neuroscience. I was just reading a paper, and there's this statistics approach. I'm sure I did in undergrad stats, but I forgot it. Two-way ANOVA, analysis of variance. And actually, I don't think I know anyone in my lab that could explain it offhand real quickly, really well, because we just 
learn it enough to understand what it is and why we use it. And then we have the computer do it. Um, but it's kind of like an interesting word. Saying it and having someone say, yes, I know what that means enough is like a sign kind of for neuroscience. I would be interested in how neuroscience is used two-way ANOVA because I'm not a neuroscientist. And, you know, two-way ANOVA is so useful in so many other contexts. I'm afraid I can't help today. Maybe 10 years ago, I could have better. <laughs> it's, that, it's just something you don't work with and talk about a lot. It's definitely fallen out of my headspace. I, I looked up the other day. I couldn't remember another word from my neuroscience background. Cannula is when you have like an, a permanent needle into a part of the brain or maybe someone's vein, same thing. And I used to do surgeries on rats and put cannulas in. And I was like, what's that thing? What was that thing I did? I have no idea. It's just like time passes. It <laughs> fades away. I don't do that anymore. So sometimes folks will ask me why I'm a data scientist. And I love that question, by the way, because I'm a major proponent of knowing what your why is in general or just having a why and knowing a why, knowing what your why is. Why do you do what you do? What makes you excited about your career, about your work, about your clients, about your coworkers? And one of the main reasons I am a data scientist is because it's an opportunity to create new knowledge. And that's the scientific process, really. That's the main output of science is new knowledge. And if you think about that, this is, so if you think of, that's really powerful. This is now, at the end of this scientific process, if you implement it correctly, we now know something about how the world works, about how people in the world work, or something about the world in general that we didn't know before. And that just, I, I get goosebumps. We're on podcasts, so you can't see the goosebumps that I'm getting. But when I talk about this, I actually get goosebumps. So for me, being a data scientist, and then there's also the debate is data science science. And I say absolutely yes, especially when you are implementing your work with this spirit, the spirit of creating new knowledge. And one of the I, one of the reasons I am very adamant about keeping this why in the forefront of my mind and proposing it as a why for others who maybe haven't found their why yet is because it's also a really powerful guardrail that prevents us from working on problems that we already have answers to, that have been analyzed and solved, or questions that have been asked and answered. And I'm a major proponent of avoiding that type of work, unless you have a really good reason to replicate or test replication, or you're looking for replication, that would be an exception. But in general, questions that analytical questions, research questions, and data science problems that lead to new knowledge are the ones that excite me the most. And then this goes back to what I was talking about a moment ago, my superpower, teaching and learning. One of the reasons I really enjoy teaching data science in the classroom or statistics in the classroom or at corporate training is because then I can empower others to create new knowledge. So that feels really good to me when I can help others create new knowledge or give others the skills and abilities to do that as well. I love that. Yeah. I do have one angle on that, that I hope this doesn't feel like putting you on the spot, but especially in the not revisiting established, I'm going to do air quotes, facts. And from undergrad, the scientific definition of a fact is not yet been proven false. But anyways, there is a growing awareness of 
bias inherent in data. And we so often think of data as, you know, the epitome of objectivity and we, you know, because it's a bunch of numbers, then therefore we are not, yeah, replicating or or imposing our thoughts. But there is the uh, Schrodinger's cat or whatever in place all the time about how those quote unquote facts were established in the first place, where that data was cold from, like the the Portlandia episode where they ask where the chicken is from, you know, and they they end up back at the farm. Like <laughs> the data itself, there's just a lot in there. So I'm I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that accordion. <laughs> There's a lot. That's a big question. I will say one of the things that keeps me up at night is this problem, especially when it comes to the potential for our work in data science to perpetuate, exacerbate social inequity, social inequality, racial inequality, gender inequality, economic inequality. This keeps me up at night. And I am like most or like all, like everyone. Well, no, I don't know if everybody is interested in solving that problem. I think a lot of data scientists are. I think a lot of researchers are. I think many are interested in solving that particular problem. And I count myself among those. But I would be ahead of myself if I purported to say that I had a solution. One of the, I think in, you know, I think in this format and in this context, one of the best things to do is to point folks towards others who have, who have spent even more time really focusing on this. And I think the go-to is weapons of math destruction. So yeah, so weapons of math destruction is a book. And then, and so if you're on a bad connection, that's M-A-T-H, weapons of math destruction and if you are, especially if you're just getting started on that particular, on this concern, that's a good place to get started. Thank you. Thanks for speaking to that, Adam. There's a piece of the question you asked me that I always think about, and it's, is the data true? And that, I like to believe most data is true, it, what it measured, but it's not measuring truth with the TH. That's, that's true. I think you could spend a lot of time thinking this through and noodling through this, but I would caution you on something you said. It's true as to what you measured. Well, you have measurement error. Right? We have entire, actually, yeah. uh -huh. I happen to have social statistics handbook handy, and any statistics handbook or statistics textbook is going to have either an entire chapter or a major portion of one of the introductory chapters on error, the types of error, and measurement error is one of them, perception error, all of the, and, I, and I'm on the spot to name all the errors. I wish I could rattle those off a little bit better. <laughs> but if you're interested, this is an interesting topic. Just Google data errors or error types or statistical errors, and you will get a rabbit hole that will keep you occupied for a while. Love it. I will, I will be in that rabbit hole later. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go back down that one too myself. So, so Adam, when if we have if we have people who are listening right now who are interested in kind of following one of your paths uh, or one of the paths to becoming a data scientist, right? And maybe may maybe they have domain expertise in a particular area. Maybe they don't, right? Maybe they're just starting out. Maybe they're coming from 
a boot camp, or maybe they're uh, from you know a non-traditional background, and they're just they're they're trying to switch careers, right? What are what are some things that like if you were sitting there talking to them one on one? What are some things that you would tell them, or what are some starting points for them? Like where where do you begin? Well, one admittedly self-serving item I would mention is consider the option of hiring a career coach. And that's one of the things that I do in my consulting line of consulting work is I help folks who are towards the middle or latter part of their career and they're looking to enter into or level up in data science. Uh, So, yeah, a career coach can and I've hired career coaches over the years. Back to Mando, some of the one of the questions you asked me earlier is how did you end up in data science? Well, part of that story, which I didn't talk to then is, well, I, I went in the data science route when the faculty route didn't open up for me. And mm, okay. I'm a huge fan. I had two career coaches helping me out with both faculty and non-faculty work for a while. So having been the, the recipient and the beneficiary of some great career coaching, I have also recently become a career coach as well. Probably something more practical, though. Let me give some practical advice. So a portfolio, a professional portfolio for a data scientist is probably one of the most essential and beneficial things you can do for yourself in terms of making that transition successfully. And then also maintaining a career. If you're interested in advancing your career in this way, maintaining a career trajectory that keeps you going. So having and maintaining a portfolio. I'll go through four tips on portfolio that I give folks. So the first tip is if you're, then these tips are specifically tips that can help you generate content for your portfolio, because I know one of the hardest things to do with a portfolio is, well, let me just do some fictional hypothetical project for my portfolio. It's so hard to do and also can end up being sort of dry and, and stale and, and it might not really connect with folks. So these are four ways you can add to or enhance your portfolio. And I wouldn't call them entire projects. Maybe they're mini projects and they're great additions to your portfolio. The first one is make a Rosetta Stone. So if this one is for folks who have learned one computer programming language, and now it's time for them to learn another computer programming language, or maybe they already know two computer programming languages. And in fact, the Rosetta Stone idea for your portfolio doubles as a way to build on and expand your skills. So here's what a Rosetta Stone is. You have a project, you've done it from start to finish. Let's say you've done a project from start to finish in Python. Now port that entire project over to R. And then in a portfolio platform, I usually recommend GitHub, then in portfolio platform, commit that work as Git commits as a Rosetta Stone, side-by-side examples of Python and R code that produce the same results and the same output. And I love this piece of advice because you, in doing this, you will learn so much about the language that you originally wrote the program in, and you will learn a lot about the target language. You're going to learn about both languages, and you're going to have a tangible artifact for your portfolio. And you might even learn more about that project. You might and you might encounter some new output in the new language, which is more accessible for that language that you didn't encounter in the old language. And now you're going to have a new insight about whatever your research project was. 
The next piece of advice I have is make a cheat sheet. And there's sort of tongue-in-cheek opinion about cheat sheets. I think sometimes folks don't like to call them cheat sheets because the word cheat has negative connotations. But whatever you're going to call it, if it's a quick reference or if it's a cheat sheet, whatever you're going to call it, a well-designed cheat sheet on any tool, platform, tool, platform, language that you can think of is going to be a really nice addition to your portfolio. And I recommend folks, what you do is you just find the things that you do the most frequently and you're constantly referencing at whatever website, make a cheat sheet for yourself, use it for a while, and then polish it up into a really nice presentable format. So for example, I have a cheat sheet on interpreting regression coefficients. I also have a cheat sheet that is a crosswalk from Stata, which is a statistical programming language, to Python. So actually there I've put the two of them together. I've, I've made this cheat sheet, which is also a Rosetta Stone. And if you're looking for those, you can find those on my GitHub or my LinkedIn. I have cheat sheets on my LinkedIn profile as well, and you can see examples. And I do have on YouTube a video, a step-by-step -step instructional video on how to make a cheat sheet. And they're actually really easy to do. So if you've never, if you, if, even if you consider yourself not graphically inclined, if you pick the right tools and they might, the tools that you would pick might not be your first choice because just because they're not marketed that way, if you pick the right tools, you can put together a really nice cheat sheet relatively easily. The third tip is to write an article, dot, 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 about a piece of software that you dislike. Right. So write a write an article about a piece of software that you dislike. And this has to be done with, especially in the open source community, do this one carefully, possibly even contact the creators and also be sure not to blame anybody or pass judgment. Just talk about how and why this particular project doesn't quite live up to your full aspiration or your full expectation. I've done this a couple times in a variety of ways. I didn't in the title specifically say, I don't like this or I don't like that. But in at least one case, one of the articles I wrote, I was able to later submit as a cross-reference or an additional reference on an issue in GitHub. And this was specifically for pandas. So there was a feature in pandas that that wasn't working the way I wanted it to work. Pandas. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, pandas is great, right? And so there's a feature in pandas yes, that is. wasn't working in quite the way that I wanted it to. I wrote an article about it. Actually, I framed the article, the article title is How I Broke Pandas. And actually, several versions of pandas back, the issue was it was relatively easy to generate a pandas data frame with duplicate column names. And having duplicate column names in a pandas data frame obviously can cause problems in your code later because you're going to have, you basically have multiple keys for different columns. And now there's a setting in pandas that will guard against this. And it's an optional setting. You have to toggle it on and off. And this article, I like to say, helped improve pandas. So write, a, write an article about software you dislike. And it, or and then fr and also like I said, be diplomatic. And in this case, I was diplomatic by framing the article title by saying a few times I managed to break pandas. And this then, reminds me a lot of uh, Kyle Kingsbury and his Jepson tests that he used to do. 
uh, he was a uh, uh, fear on Twitter. He's not there anymore, but he, you know, he would run all these tests against distributed databases and distributed like you know locking systems and stuff like that, and then write up these large scale technical explanations of what broke and what didn't. Mm-hmm. Right? They're 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 super fascinating to read, and the way that he approached them. Adam, or it's a lot like you're saying, right? He, you know, he was, mm-hmm. he approached it with a lot of grace, and which I think is super important, especially when you're talking about open source stuff, right? Because this is, this is what people are like, you know, they're pouring their, their heart and soul and lives into, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't, you don't have to be ugly about it, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and then he ended up like, this is what he does now, right? Like he wrote this framework to do analysis of distributed systems, right? And now companies hire him. And this was what he, you know, that's his job now. And I'm a big fan of the guy and I miss him being on Twitter and, and interacting with him and his, his technical expertise and also his, just his own personality. And that's, sorry, the, the, your topic or your, or your, uh, your little cheat there reminded me of that. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, we'll put some links. Thanks Casey in the show notes about, uh, about his posts. Uh, so if, if people haven't, haven't come across his stuff yet, it's, it's a fascinating read. It's I, super helpful even to this day. Right. I'm thankful for the connection because now I have another example when I talk to people about this and it's incredible that you say he built an entire career out of this. Yes, so I had no idea this yeah, particular awesome. tip was so powerful. So cool. <laughs> so I think I think you said you had one more, Adam. The the fourth one is contribute to another project. So one of the best examples of this is I wrote an article on how to enhance your portfolio, and someone really took this fourth one to a whole new level. I'm sure others have as well, but but one person. I have links. We'll get links in the, I can get some links and some links in the show notes. What he did was he found a package in R that brings data for basically sample data sets for R programmers and statisticians working and data scientists working with R. But he was a Python person. So he suggested, hey, this could, what about making this? I remember he contacted me and he said, I read your article about adding to my portfolio. I really think it might be might make sense to port this project over to Python. And so he was combining two of them, right? So he was making a Rosetta Stone and he was contributing someone else's project. So now this data is available both in R and in Python. And the author of this project has posted about it. He posted about it in May, early May. And it's constantly still a month and a half later getting comments and likes and links. So he's really gotten some mileage out of this particular piece, uh, this addition to his portfolio. And the original author of the original software also has acknowledged it. And it's really a success. It's really a success. So contribute to another project is my fourth tip. Oh, one more idea on contributing to other project. Oh, I have an article on that lists several projects that are accepting contributions from intermediate and beginners. So the point there is I identified specific projects that are accepting beginner intermediate submissions on contributions, mostly via GitHub. But if you go to GitHub, and if you're newer to GitHub, you can actually go to a project that you like go to its issues tab 
And then most projects have tags associated with their issues that are identified as beginner friendly. And that is an excellent place to go to or in order to get started on contributing to another project, which makes the world a better place because you're contributing to open source and you have an addition to your portfolio. Oh, these are fantastic tips. Thank you, Adam. I'm glad you I'm glad you like them. Can I give another one? Another big tip? This one's less portfolio, more Yeah, lay it on us. Do by all means. Uh, and I'd be interested, May, since you also made a similar career transition to me. You know, I'm, I made an investment. I think I know what you might say on this one, but I was I spent money. I spent money on the transition. I hired consultants on Fiverr and Upwork to help me upgrade my social media presence. I hired the career coaches that I mentioned. I went to, oh, actually the PhD program. Now it's not free. So I spent money on my transition. And I would point that out to folks who are interested in making this transition. It's not a transition that is effortless. And it's also not a transition that you can do. I think it's not one that you can do without investing, also investing money. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you my real answer on this uh, okay. or, co or corollary. I had a pretty good gig at a state institution with a retirement, you know, all of these things. And I up and left and went to code school. And I, I had recently paid off a lot of debt, so I didn't have a lot of savings. I had no savings, let's just say that. And they had, the code school had offered this like loan program that fell through. So I'm in code school and they no longer are, are offering the ability to have this like special code school loan. So I put code school on my credit card. <gasps> and then while in code school, my 10 year old car died and I had to get a new car. And, and oh. in that moment, I was struggling to get some fundamental object-oriented programming concepts and I'm like holy cow I I've got a mortgage I no longer have a car I now you know I'm in a real bind here but I believe in myself I know I made these choices after a lot of considered thought and consultation I too had hired a career coach and I was like I've already made this call I'm gonna make the best of it I'm just gonna do what I can and like see what happens. And I had to, yeah, really have a test of faith on that original call to make those investments. I would not recommend doing it the way I did to anyone. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I went from a pretty well-established career and salary into like a lot of people when they go into tech, it's a, it's a huge jump. And I had the opposite experience. So that investment continued to be required of me for several years. Even still, I, I choose to do things related to nonprofits and all, all kinds of things. But like, yeah, it takes a lot of faith and commitment and money often in some form can be helpful. There are a lot of, for, on the programming side, code schools that offer for you to pay a percentage once you get a salary or other 
offsetting arrangements. So if somebody's listening who is considering programming, I have not seen those analogs in data science, but on the programming side, there's especially if you're from a group underrepresented in tech, there's a number of different things that are possible to pursue still. Here we are talking about talking about some of the lesser acknowledged aspects of this transition. Some of the yeah. harder to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah, I really like what you said, May, about the need to believe in yourself. And Adam, kind of, I think what you're saying, right, is you know you have to be willing to bet on yourself. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. You have to be willing to bet on yourself, and you know, in sometimes in some forms, that's gonna that's gonna mean writing a check, or in, in May's example, putting it on your credit card. But <laughs> you know, like so, sometimes that's what it means, right? And that's super scary. Right. It's it's I mean, I'm not 100 percent convinced that I have enough faith in my ability to run the dishwasher some days. You know what I mean? Like, I don't I don't know if I'll be able to I'm gonna be able to do that today or not. But this is going to be really silly and stupid. But one of my favorite cartoons is called Avatar The Last Airbender. It's a series uh, on uh, a cartoon network. I think. No, Nickelodeon. I watched it with my kids when they were super little, and it's it's still a thing that we like rewatch right now. Uh, now that they're older, and there's this one episode where this kind of like grandfatherly wizened uncle, right, is confronted by <laughs> by someone who's trying to mug him, and he <laughs> the, the the uncle is this like you know super hardcore general guy, like, and he critiques his mugging abilities and he corrects him and says you know if you stand up straight and you change this about the way that you approach it you'll be much more intimidating and probably more a more successful mugger he's like but it doesn't seem like your heart's into the mugging right and so he makes this guy a cup of tea and they talk about it and the guy's like i don't know what i'm doing i'm I'm lost i'm all over the place all i want to do is become a masseuse but i just can't i just can't get my stuff together and something that the uncle said that really, really struck with me was he said, while it's important and best for us to believe in ourselves, sometimes it can be a big blessing when someone else believes in you. Yeah, beautiful. And, and sometimes sometimes you need that. And so, like, you, you can't always, like, I, I get it. I, you can't always bet on yourself, right? Or I mean, you, you can bet on yourself, but sometimes you don't have that backup to be like to actually follow through with it and so like that's why community is so important right that's why you know having having a group of people who you know even even if it's one person right someone who can be who can be like that backstop to be you know you don't believe in yourself today don't worry about it i believe in you it's okay you can do it you're gonna do it right community is Uh, just massive absolutely massive having a good strong community is so important. I could also, I think I could add to what you're saying is about betting on yourself. I don't know if I love the analogy because it's not a casino bet. The odds are right. You know, the, the odds are not in favor of the house here. If you have done the right consultation, spoken with friends and family, leveraged your community and done an honest, objective, accurate assessment of your skills, abilities, and your ambition and your abilities, et cetera, it's a bet, it's a wager, but it's a calculated risk. Yes, that <laughs> yeah. is how I have described it also, yes, mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. 
I loved what that story from Airbender and it, it ties in a few of our topics. One is one of the things Adam said originally, which is like being deeply in touch with your why mm. really helps. It also ties in the whole teaching thing. And often teachers, that is one of the primary roles is to, you know, offer faith and commitment to your pursuits. And if I had had different code school teachers, you know, the stress of like my entire livelihood being dependent on um, my understanding these concepts in week two of boot camp that I was struggling with. And I had made a calculated bet and I thought I was going to be awesome, but I was not. It was like, a, you know, the classic peanuts teacher is talking. And I had to, yeah, lean into my teachers, my school, my peers believe in me. I believed in me before, <laughs> even if I don't in this moment. And I just have to let all that stress like move to the side so that I can re-engage. And that was really the only way I was able to do it was was having a similar uh I didn't try to mug anybody, but <laughs> <laughs> I had I had some backup that really helped me make that through. Yeah, when and those, so, when those cr- yeah, when those credit card folks call, like it's it's, yeah. it's, it's tricky. And then I had oh. to buy a car, and those people were calling oh. me, and they said you just did employment verification. They said you don't have a job. I was like, oh, <laughs> well, like, you can take my car back, but I have really good yeah. credit. How about you talk to your boss and call me back? So anyway, <laughs> these things all tie into if we have time to talk about something I was hoping we would cover is this thing about imposter syndrome and like believing in oneself, but also not believing in oneself simultaneously and how to navigate that. I don't know, Adam, if you have particular advice or thoughts on that. I do have some advice and thoughts on that. Actually, just yesterday, I hosted a live webinar on this particular topic with another career coach named Sammy. And she and I are very passionate about helping folks. When we work with clients, we work with folks intentionally to evaluate whether imposter syndrome might be part of the equation. And we've talked actually, so in this webinar, we gave three, we talked about three immunity boosts or three ways to boost your immunity against imposter syndrome. And in one way or another, I think we've touched on all three, Uh, I mean, with the exception of maybe one of them. So if you're interested in that topic, uh, reach out to me as well. And I have a replay available of that particular webinar. And I could make the replay available on a one-on-one basis to folks as well who really want to, to see that material. And oh, thanks, the Adam, second, that. yeah, please reach out. And LinkedIn is the easiest way to reach me is LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. Twitter actually works really well too these days. We'll uh, put both of those on the, in the show notes for folks. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I look forward to potentially sharing that with folks who reach out. The community was the second immunity boost that we shared. And May, May actually, Mendo and May, you both just got done talking extensively about community. And then the first immunity boost we shared was Know Your Baseline. We called it Know Your Baseline. And I know from our planning that we would put in the notes, the this program notes, a link to an online assessment that's named after the original scientist or one of the two original scientists who really began documenting imposter syndrome back in the 70s. 
And then they called it imposter phenomenon. Oh, the history of this topic is just fascinating. Women scientists, North Carolina, first documented this. And one of the two scientists is named Pauline Clance. So the Clance imposter phenomenon scale is, that'll be in the show notes. And you can take the imposter phenomenon scale and then objectively evaluate based on this is imposter syndrome a part of your experience? If it is, what is the extent of that? And just knowing your baseline can be a really good way, I think, to protect you from the effects of the experience. And it's also, I think, important to point out that imposter syndrome isn't regarded as a medical or clinical diagnosis. This is usually defined as a collection of thoughts and thoughts and actions associated with career or other academic pursuits. And then the third immunity boost is disseminate knowledge. And I love the disseminate knowledge as an immunity booster because what it does is, is it flips the script. So a lot of times folks with with imposter syndrome, we say to ourselves, gee, if I could just, if I could get one more degree, I could probably then do this. Or if I got one more certification, or I could apply, I can apply for this job next year. Or I could apply for that promotion next year, because I will have completed whatever certification program. Or if I read one, one more year more, of experience, right? Yeah, one more year of experience, or one more book, or one more class on Udemy. And I, especially for mid and late career professionals. And we talked about this earlier, May, the bank of experience and domain knowledge that mid and late career professionals bring. I promise nobody else has had your experience. Everybody has a unique experience and everybody has something to offer that is new and unique and that is valuable to others. So I say, instead of signing up for the seminar, host the seminar, teach the seminar, (laughs) right? You know, and there's nothing, and again, there's nothing wrong with certifications. There's nothing wrong with Udemy classes. I have Udemy classes that you could, should go take, but the, there's nothing wrong with those, but in measure, in measure. And then also never, 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 never forget that you already have skills and abilities that is probably worth sharing with the rest of the world. So I recommend doing that as a boost, as an immunity boost against imposter syndrome. Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> So I took the Clance Imposter Phenomenon Scale test myself, and I scored really well. It was super, super low for me. I'm like an overconfident person at this point. But when I was a kid, I wasn't. (laughs) I was super shy. I would not talk to people. I'd read a book in a corner. I was so introverted. And it changed over time, I think, by thinking about how confidence leads to confidence. The more confident you are, the more confident you act, you be at the world. Yes. And the more reason you have to be confident over time. And that snowballed for me, thank goodness. And it could happen mm-hmm. for other people too. Gradually, slowly over time, the more you do confidence, the more you'll feel it and be it naturally. Yes. Yeah. I think it, yes. I think it works the other direction too. And you have to be real careful about that. You know, like Adam, you're talking about flipping the script, right? If you have a negative talk script, of, you know, just one more, just this one thing. I'm not good enough yet. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. that can re- reinforce itself as well, right? And you just never end up getting where you should be or deserve to be. Or, you know what I mean? It's it's something that I struggle with, 
I, I've been doing this for for a really really long time, and I still I still struggle with this stuff. You know, it's it's not it's not easy. It's not easy to get past sometimes. And you know, some days are better than others. And Casey, like you said, like it's it's got it has gotten better over time. You know, but yeah, sometimes you need those uh, daily affirmations in the morning in the mirror <laughs> to, <laughs> to get going. You know, what what whatever works for you, right? But that idea, I love that idea, Casey, of confidence bringing more confidence and and reinforcing itself. And being mindful of Dunning-Kruger and careful of the inaccuracy of self-assessment. So I like a lot of these ways in which making sure you're doing both, I think, all the time as much as possible. Like seeing the ways in which you are discounting yourself and seeing the ways in which you might be, you know, over crediting. Right. Mm-hmm. You want to like, good, like a lot of good science, you want to take as many measurements as possible. And then yeah. the, the, the majority vote of those measurements points to some sort of consensus. So the, the IP scale is one tool you can use. And I think it, in, to your point may be a mistake to rely on it exclusively. Uh, and there's, you know, you mentioned Dunn and Kruger, but there's also the Jahari window. You know, oh, I don't know that. What's that? Oh, the Jahari window is great. So there's four quadrants and the upper left quadrant of the Jahari window are things that you know about yourself and things that other people know about yourself. And then you also have a quadrant where things that you know about yourself, but nobody else knows. And then there's a quadrant where other people know things about you that you don't know. And then there's the then there's the complete blind spot where where nobody there are things about you that you don't know that other people don't know. And then, of course, you have this interesting conversation with yourself like so that quadrant that I don't know about it and nobody else knows about it. So does it really exist? Does the tree falling in the woods make a sound Mm -hmm. when nobody's there to hear it? So you can have a lot of fun at Jahari window uh, as well. And I think it also definitely connects with what you were just saying a moment ago about accuracy of self-assessments. Then it gets back to the measurement that we were talking about earlier, the measurement errors. So there's perceptual measurement, there's me- or there perceptual error, measurement error. Shucks, I had it. Here it is. Sampling error, randomization error, all kinds of error. So I, I managed to pull that book out and then get some of those in front of me. <laughs> There are some nice nicknames for a couple of the windows, the Jahari windows. The blind spot is one of those four quadrants. And fashad, I like to think about, is another one. It's when you put on a, a front, people don't know something about you because you are fashading it. Mm. So now we'll go ahead and transition into our uh, reflection section. This is the part where our you know, esteemed panelists and dear friends uh, reflect on the episode and kind of what they learned, what stuck with them. And we'd like to get a reflection from our guest, Adam, as well. But Adam, you get to go last. So Sounds good. Uh, you can kind of, you know, gauge from the rest of us, right? Who would like to go first? I can. I did not know that there was an evaluative measure about imposter phenomenon or the any of that history shared. And I'm definitely going to check that out. I talk with and have talked and will talk with a lot a lot of people about that topic but just having some sort of metric available for some self-assessment i think is amazing so that is a really fun new thing that i am taking away among many many other fun things how about you casey 
I like writing about software. You just like in a positive, constructive tone. That's something I look for when I'm interviewing people too. I want to know when they get get feedback, when they give feedback, will it be thoughtful mm-hmm. and kind and deep and respectful of past decisions and all that. And if you've already done that in an article in your portfolio somewhere, that's awesome. That's pretty powerful. Oh, how fantastic is that? Yeah, yeah that's, I love um, that. I don't think I've ever written an article like that. Maybe uh, like a GitHub issue or a pull request that's longer than it feels like it should be. Maybe an <laughs> article would be nice next time I hit that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. That's that's great. Uh, I guess I'll go next. The thing that, that really, really resonated with me, Adam, was when you were talking about investing in yourself and, you know, being willing to write that check if that's what it means, you know, or, uh, or swipe that credit card may or whatever. I'm sorry. I, I keep picking you. I keep picking on you about that. It's, it, it, it's it, fine. It's, it's, <laughs> it's such pretty a wild. I love it. I love it. And it, it reminded me, I think I've talked about it before, but my, one of my, one of my favorite, uh, favorite writers, definitely my favorite sports writer is this, this guy named Shay Serrano. Uh, he used to write for Grantland and he writes for the ringer and he's, Right. He's right. He's a novelist too. And he, his catchphrase, this is why I said it earlier in the episode, his catchphrase is bet on yourself. Right. And so sometimes when I'm, when I'm feeling maybe a little imposter syndrome or a little, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I click on the Twitter search and I type from colon Shea Serrano space bet on yourself and hit enter. And I just see like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tweets of this guy that's just like bet on yourself today you know bet on yourself right bet on yourself today no one else is going to do it you know no one else no one no one's come to save you save you bet on your like stuff like that right and uh thank you adam for that reminder today i I needed that you're welcome i'm so happy that you got that takeaway thank you so much for for sharing the takeaway I have, I think, two reflections. One, what a breath of fresh air, the opportunity to talk about life, career, but career in data science and programming in a non-technical way. I think the majority of our conversation was non-technical. <laughs> we, we had a brief, we briefly went into some technicalities when we talked about how you can sometimes have duplicate heading names in a pandas data frame, right? That was right. a little bit technical. <laughs> Otherwise, we really just spoke about the humanistic aspects of this world. So I thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I got a research tip. If Mando, what a brilliant idea. So if you're ever looking for more background on a book, do a Twitter search for the book name. And then anybody oh, who's been yes. speaking about that book. Yeah, right. That's a you could extend that's fantastic. that to a research. Tip. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so today oh, I learned a new way to get additional background on any book. I'm just going to go to Twitter, Google, or not Google, (laughs) search its the book title name, and then I'm going to see what other people are saying about that book. And then I can check out their bios. I can see what else they're sharing. They might have insights that I might not have had. And now I can benefit from that. Thank you. Thank you so much for the research tip. Yeah. And I think it dovetails really well into what you were talking about earlier, Adam, about, you know, publishing data, right? Like working, building out this portfolio, you know, writing your articles, getting it out there, right? Because they're, yeah, like someone, someone's going to go to Google or Twitter and, and type into the search bar, right? Like 
you know, a, a pandas data frame column, same name. You know what I mean? And and now they're going to hit, you know, a few times I managed to break pandas, your article, right? But it could be about anything, right? It could be about about that stupid Docker thing that you fought with yesterday or <laughs> about the the eight hours I spent on Monday trying to make an HTTP post with no body and it just uh-huh. hung forever. And I couldn't, I eight hours it took me to figure out why it wasn't working. And it's because I didn't have one line in, I didn't call request.setbody. I, I just didn't, I just didn't do it. I did, I, I've done this a million, more than probably more than a million times in my career. And I didn't do it, and it co- it cost me eight hours eight hours of my life that I'm never getting back, right? But 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 it happens like that, that that's part of the job, right? Mm-hmm. Is that is, yeah, is that sure stuff is. And you I know, know you cry, cry about it, and you eat some gummy worms, and then you pick yourself back up, and you're good to go. Yeah, another common one that people are constantly writing about is reordering the columns in a pandas data frame. There's like a hundred ways to mm-hmm. do it, and none of them mm-hmm. are efficient. <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah yeah i so love when you, when, when you hit yeah you hit the one that that works for you you know write write a little something about it it's all right exactly like, yeah all right well thank you so much for for coming on loved having you on 